everybody. How's it going? Welcome to Jerusalem News, the Israel Teacher's Lounge, where we try to keep you informed about what's going on, make sure you feel connected, and have a deeper understanding of what's going on in Israel. I'm your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with co-host Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? It's going well, Mike, except that we are in Tel Aviv and a very shrubby day. It's it is, uh, it not is so a particularly pleasant. hot and unpleasant day in Tel Aviv, but inside it's pretty nice. Thank God for 21st century technology. Yes. Uh, and I think this is a pretty uh, important and special episode. Can you introduce our, yes. our guest? So we're lucky today to be sitting with uh, Ambassador Dan Shapira, who was the ambassador to Israel for America under the President Obama administration. And we're sitting in the Institute for National Security Services. Studies, sorry. Yeah. National Security Studies. Um, and we're pretty excited, especially since last night there was some dramatic news in Israel, um, whether it was uh, um, game-changing or just uh, nice drama. We'd love to hear about that a bit and uh, some other things. But maybe first, if you can share with us what, what's going on, what are you doing these days? Well, it's great to be with you. So welcome to Tel Aviv. Thanks for coming down the hill. Uh, yeah, I finished uh, my service as a U.S. ambassador in January of 2017 when the administration changed. Uh, we have three daughters, and the oldest of the well, no, they were all in the middle of their school year at that time. So we decided to rent a place and stay till the end of the school year. Uh, moved to Ranana, where we have a lot of friends. Uh, and the oldest of those three was then in uh, Yudalef, eleventh uh, grade, and uh, told us in no uncertain terms she was not going to return home for her <laughs> last year of high school. So we accommodated that. We've stayed this year, so she can graduate, which she will in a, in a couple of uh, months. Uh, she'll stay for a gap year, and we'll probably stay while she does that as well. Oh, wow. um, so I've uh, become a, a what uh, gap year is she looking into? Uh, she'll probably do Mechina program. Oh, yeah. nice. Oh, wow. Uh, so I've become a distinguished visiting fellow here at INSS, the Institute for National Security Studies, which is really, uh, I think, Israel's uh, leading uh, think tank on foreign policy and national security with uh, outstanding former intelligence, military, diplomatic figures. Amos Yadlin uh, is, the, uh, is the director. Uh, I also consult Israeli uh, high-tech companies that are uh, expanding their work in the United States. So I travel to the U.S. a fair bit, and I travel for speak- speeches. But mostly we're just enjoying our time in Israel as private citizens, which was uh, obviously a very different relationship than when uh, we were the ambassador and family. Uh, that was fun. This is fun, too. Do you guys ever consider Aliyah? Uh, you know, that's not the plan. Um, well, you know, it's hard to predict the future. Uh, our, our plans to return home. the kids seem... Uh, I mean, they've been here a good chunk of their well, life. Well, they have. They, they have spent six of the years, almost seven years of their childhood here. So they're very at home, uh, particularly our oldest, who goes to an Israeli uh, high school, feels very, very at home here, and she'll be here for her, the gap year. We'll see what her plans are after that. Um, anyway, whatever happens, we know we and our kids will always be very connected here and sure. probably spend a lot of time here what, in whatever format that takes. Before we get to like about your career specifically, you've been here now. I mean, you've been you're, you've been connected to Israel for a very long time and your studies, but now that you've lived here for over six years, do you feel like your understanding of the issues, in other words, your professional understandings have changed? Have they deepened? Are they different than before you lived here for this amount of time? Well, I think I uh, had a, a pretty deep understanding of the issues and the policy, certainly the U.S. policy. Uh, from before and, and during this time. But there's no question when you spend a lot of time in a place, you uh, learn the perspective. You don't always adopt the perspective, but you certainly learn the perspective uh, of the people who live there. And obviously, uh, when Israelis have to grapple with uh, the security challenges they face on every border, uh, very much uh, in their daily lives, 
things that uh, uh, seem very distant uh, from uh, from Washington D.C. Uh, are obviously a, a much more personal kind of uh, concern when it's your son or daughter uh, on the front lines uh, to defend the country. So we've certainly learned a lot about how Israelis experience uh, the, those realities. So not so much a change of perspective, but a sense, a deeper appreciation and understanding. For sure. Yeah. Let's talk about last night, no? Do you want to talk well, about I just want to ask one, a uh, couple of questions about your career. And I genuinely don't know the like I, I don't I really don't know. Like when you is ambassador something that you you set an ambition for and you work for or you were working in the world of academia and then sort of by ha- you know, one thing led to another, and you became yeah. an ambassador. I was not in the world of academia. I was wor- wor- in the work- world of foreign policy, uh-huh. I, but I was not. I didn't come up through the career foreign service of the State Department. Those who joined the State Department as young officers and travel the world every three years at a different embassy uh, eventually rise up and might become ambassadors in that route. Uh, other ambassadors might be appointed as political appointees because they are uh, have a close relationship with the president, but they're not always experts on uh, their policy. Area they might be business people or campaign supporters. Uh, I was a sort of a hybrid. I was a political appointee because I didn't come from the State Department, but I really was a policy expert. I had spent most of my career uh, advising senators and members of Congress on foreign policy and especially Middle East policy. A couple of years in the Clinton administration, and I met uh, Barack Obama when he was elected to the Senate from Illinois, from my home state of Illinois, and uh, became a sort of informal advisor to him, and then a campaign advisor to him, and then eventually went to the White House. Uh, My dream job, actually, when I came to Washington after graduate school, was the job I had right before I came to Israel for to be an investor, which was to be the senior... Thanks, Obama. Yeah, no, no. It was to be the senior director of the Middle East uh, desk on the National Security Council, uh, which is the senior Middle East position in the White House. Incredible experience. I did that for two and a half years uh, and loved it. Uh, And it was only during that time that the idea of me serving uh, as our ambassador in Tel Aviv occurred to me and occurred to him and and some others Um, and that really was the dream job I'd never dreamed of that was one above my dream and it was uh, the job of a lifetime Oh, so it, it surpassed even. You feel like that was more. Oh yes. Back. Oh, nothing will ever uh, surpass uh, that uh, experience. I don't think uh, to represent our great country, uh, which we love very much, to a great ally who we also love, uh, to be uh, literally the representative of the United States and the president of the United States in uh, Israel, to be able to use Hebrew to engage with the Israeli government and the Israeli people and all of their diversity all over the country, uh, to be part of negotiating very important uh, breakthroughs like the Iron Dome uh, uh, technology or the $38 billion uh, uh, memorandum of understanding or the ceasefires and the Gaza wars. Uh, That's about as uh, great a professional experience and even more than a professional experience, a kind of a personal calling as I think I'll ever experience. That's interesting that you you mentioned on your list of things was that one of the things that meant something to you was being able to speak in Hebrew with people in the Israeli government, like, why would that? Why why does that strike you on your list of something that's so personally satisfying? Well, I love speaking Hebrew. I uh, worked hard to get it to the point where I can do it professionally and and for public speaking. Um, and uh, you know, it it became evident to me when I was working in Washington that. Uh, it was not always easy for us as the United States uh, to connect with certain audiences in Israel. Uh, One of the things that I think we uh, misunderstand is that all Israelis speak great English because the Israelis were most likely to meet 
Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, the ones who have studied in the States. Well, the Prime the, Minister seems to think so. Of, of course, and, 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 and various senior people in, in the government, they do speak very good English. But as you uh, uh, spend time here, you realize there are significant gaps and people whose English is at least not that good or they struggle or they may not have any. And some of them serving in senior positions and some of them serving as members of Knesset. And certainly if you go around and travel the country and meet people in different uh, communities. And so uh, this was the chance to help uh, explain our policy and our vision of the U.S.-Israel relationship and how it could affect an individual living in Afula uh, or in Rahat or on a Moshav in the, in the Arva uh, and hopefully connect with them even if they previously uh, saw the U.S.-Israel relationship as something sort of distant and, and conducted uh, in high places by other people. Uh, we wanted it to come home to individuals and uh, have programs that the embassy would sponsor where they could participate in. Um, and the use of uh, Hebrew to communicate with people in their own language so there's no filter and they, their, their own comfort level uh, rises uh, made an enormous uh, difference. Much there, more there are ambassadors who aren't fluent. I just don't, I, 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 I can't imagine your job can be as satisfying. It's, it's, uh, obviously, it's impossible to always have a, a fluent ambassador or fluent diplomats. Uh, my experience is that the impact of it and using it in the media and social media was much more profound than I expected. In Israel particularly, uh, obviously I mentioned the case that there are Israelis who just their, their English isn't uh, uh, at a level where it's easy for them to, to, to have those conversations. But in Israel it has a different quality too because it, I think it speaks to Israeli sense of isolation. Uh-huh. You know, there's only one place you could have gone and invested time and energy and, and your intellect to master that language, and that's Israel. It's not yeah. like Arabic or Spanish or, or many other languages where there's 25 other countries where it's relevant. It means that there's a difference between an ally and an, and an insider. And it told people this person gets us, and there's a lot of culture embedded in language as well. So the, I hope it signaled to people that uh, I am a friend and I do get right. them. Uh, doesn't mean they always liked everything I had to say on the policy, but uh, I think it, it made the communication much uh, much smoother. I'm not. I'm not. I just have one more question about. All right. Uh, <laughs> we'll let you one more, and then. <laughs> okay. Then current events. I, I don't want to get into gossip, or I'm not interested in like interoffice politics. But we, you know, famously, the the prime minister and President Obama didn't always get along so well. Yeah, I heard that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just. I honestly wonder. Does that affect your job so directly? Because the people you're interacting with, and you know, first of all, in diplomacy, everyone's, I assume, being, at least most of the time, relatively polite. But in terms of what you have to do in your interaction, does that really filter down to your day-to-day job? First of all, uh, it was an, uh, it was true, of course, that they had some big disagreements, yeah. and sometimes it was personal and political. It's also true that in the same period, uh, they got an enormous amount of work done together yeah. and often worked very uh, productively and respectfully together. So it, it, the story is a bit exaggerated, but I understand why. The drama of disagreements uh, is obviously much more... Uh, of, a, of an interesting story to tell. So um, my, many of the many of my days, uh, it didn't affect me at all, and the work was highly professional, and the work was uh, uh, really about cooperative efforts to cha- tackle major common security challenges with our joint military and intelligence and technology efforts to help Israeli companies and American companies meet uh, working in the Prime Minister's office and the, and the Foreign Ministry and the Defense Ministry I was I was like, a, they were like second homes and I was mm-hmm. welcomed as you would always expect the American ambassador to be welcomed in, uh, in, in, a, in an ally's uh, inner, inner offices. 
Um, but uh, of course, there were other days and other incidents where uh, there was tension, and where, of course, I had to represent uh, my okay. government, and uh, it wasn't personal. Exactly, it, and, and, and that has to happen to an that's ambassador normal anyway. Yeah, that, uh, anyway, sure. even if even if they're best buddies, sure. their national interests don't exactly align. We are very close allies. Our our interests very much overlap, but we are two different countries, yeah. and there will be times when we see things differently. Uh, and uh, sometimes then those conversations can be tense. They were never personal, but doesn't mean they were always pleasant. Uh, obviously, I, Israelis, uh, something <laughs> I, I love about Israelis is they never hold back what they actually think. So there were places I would go where people would tell me very bluntly, uh, <laughs> usually respectfully, but bluntly that uh, they disagreed with our policy. Once in a while, it was less respectful, usually not about me, sometimes about President Obama. Um, but that was uh, you know, part of the job and uh, nothing that uh, I wouldn't have expected and, and I never crossed the lines of me feeling like I had been put in, a, in an uncomfortable situation. I was, I was representing my government. At times, that meant disagreements. By far, the vast majority of the time, it didn't mean that. I mean, you know, in other words, you feel like you had a pretty normal ambassadorship. I, well, I did. I mean, obviously, the the uh, Israel's in the news a lot, and yeah. uh, issues that happen in Israel matter to the United States because of our interests and because of how closely people follow it. So it was an ambassadorship that uh, was intense because uh, I had high-level interests back home and, of course, very major issues we had to deal with here. I sometimes wondered what it would be like, no disrespect, uh, to be the ambassador, the United States ambassador to, I don't know. Andorra. Botswana, I'll say, which is a lovely country, but probably doesn't get the same kind of minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour attention from Washington, and the issues that happen there you know, may just not rise to the international uh, uh, scene quite as frequently or within or the headlines. So I, I assume the intensity level might be a little bit different, but I, I, these were the issues I wanted to work on and care very much about, so it was fine. I guess I should have said normal for Israel, because yeah. that's always its own category. Yeah, exactly. So, so let's go to those headlines, yeah. Because the drama here yesterday was at its highest in Israel news anyway, whether, right, that uh, yesterday it started in the morning, I believe, where the Prime Minister's office put out that he was going to speak at 8 o'clock. There were going to be great revelations, game-changing revelations about uh, Iran and the Ira- Iran deal. Israeli stock market dropped. Israeli stock market dropped, right. There was dramatic. Um, and, of course, over uh, the the week, oh, the night before, there had been a, a great explosion in Syria, which there's a lot of you know secrecy to it. Who was it? Was it Israel? And there's always a suspected thing: was Iranians were killed and all that. So the drama built up throughout the day, and then the prime minister came on the news at eight o'clock at night. Of course, the scheduling at eight o'clock at night, the main news time. And with a PowerPoint presentation, with some of us in the room weren't so impressed with, um, uh, and to show the drama of uh, that the Mossad had actually done something quite, quite fantastic in that of itself, of, of breaking into an archive in Tehran, and apparently making back back to Israel the same night with a hundred thousand documents. So, did the drama really meet? Is there anything new? Did we learn anything new? What, what what's going on? Right. Well, since you were so involved in yeah. Israel in the time, yeah. of so there's a lot going on. Uh, we should talk about Syria uh, maybe a little bit separately. Let's mm-hmm. just start with the uh, prime minister's uh, uh, remarks last night. Uh, first thing needs to be said is the intelligence uh, accomplishment uh, is incredible. 
to uh, acquire and then exfiltrate uh, that kind of quality and volume of documents uh, is something I'm not sure any other intelligence service could do. And so hats off to the Mossad and, and to the other intelligence services that were part of it. And it's something I think Israelis should rightfully be feel very proud of. And, and it was an, it's important to have that data. Um, as far as the substance of what the Prime Minister presented was, uh, I don't think there was much new. I think it was information that was known. Um, much of it uh, was quite old about the Iranian nuclear weapons program that was active until 2003 and was then frozen, but sort of preserved in amber, if you will, or in archives so that uh, it could be restarted at a time of their choosing, which was the case all the way through uh, the negotiations on the JCPOA and uh, uh, quite well understood that uh, Iran was not going to come clean on that aspect of its history uh, during, uh, even after the JCPOA came into effect. Um, the, what, the so CPOA being the Iran deal. The Iran deal, right. So, so that information wasn't really new, um, and he didn't present anything that uh, uh, qualifies really as a violation of the agreement. He didn't call it a violation of the agreement. If there was a violation of the agreement, actually there's a provision in which the United States and the other uh, countries, the P5 plus 1, can uh, snap back the sanctions and put them back right. into effect. Uh, and that would actually be a very powerful tool because we'd be able to punish Iran for the violation and keep the other countries united with us. Uh, but he didn't do that. He, he made the case that it was a bad deal, which he's, of course, made all along. Right. He provided information, which I think we've known, I know we've known, uh, at least uh, in the, the government. The deal was based on assuming that their diplomatic smokescreen wasn't true, that they actually had this program. Right. The agreement never uh, depended on trust with Iran, because we don't right. trust Iran. We shouldn't. Uh, Iran wants nuclear weapons. Iran has pursued them. Iran intends to try to get them later, and Iran has this terrible ideology, of, first of all, to threaten other neighbors, but obviously also about uh, destroying Israel. And so it's, can, it's unacceptable that they get that. So the deal didn't depend on trusting them. The deal expected them to lie, but removed the physical capability by taking out enriched uranium, by removing centrifuges, by paving over the plutonium facility, and by putting in place an intrusive inspection regime for them to actually carry out that uh, that uh, that uh, program. Now, over time, with the sunset clauses, that you know would change, and that's a, some, a worry and something that we knew we were going to have to come back to in year eight, nine, ten, uh, whatever. But the prime minister obviously always disagreed with the structure of that deal. He made the argument last night based on uh, information that we've known. Uh, it had probably never been presented to the public in quite that fashion. Um, and so I have no doubt that it had some impact on, on public uh, understandings. But the truth is, I think for people who follow this closely, including all the P5 plus 1 governments, uh, I don't think anyone will, be, will change their minds if they're an opponent or if they're a supporter of the deal based on what he presented. The truth is, I think this was coordinated with the American administration, and I think it is in advance of President Trump doing what he, I believe, has already decided to do, which is to withdraw from the deal, and then he'll, he'll cite this information as among his reasons for doing so. I, I could be wrong, but that is what I believe I understand about what the president is planning to do. So it would make sense that they would have coordinated that. Whether I agreed or disagreed, I understood the logic of saying, I think it would be diplomatic malpractice, but I, I understood the logic of saying we shouldn't make a deal we should go to war, which I, 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 I can understand it, even though I think it's odd. I understood critics saying this wasn't a good enough deal. I don't understand the claim now, well, we should leave the deal. What's the logic of that since, as you're pointing out, within the deal, if Iran violates the deal, then the sanctions return. In other words, right. the deal, whether you think it addresses enough issues, um, at least for now, is 
holding back the nuclear development. It, it is, and, and, and all of the inspectors, but also the Israeli and the U.S. intelligence services and the other foreign intelligence services that follow it are in agreement that Iran is in compliance and has not uh, done the things it's prohibited from doing under the deal that would advance toward nuclear weapons. So it's, it's bought, buying us the time it was intended to buy. Now, I agree. It's certainly possible to say this was not a good enough deal. There were things that should have been better. It's certainly possible to say it was a bad deal and to oppose it at the time it was reached. It's a very different decision once the deal is in place, and that's the reality that's been created to say the best decision is to go back to zero and take it away versus try to improve it, try to fix it, try to lengthen it, extend it, etc. Uh, but, you know, that's the debate we're having. Um, I, you know, think there are many people in the Israeli security establishment, I know some of them personally, uh, uh, quite a few of them actually, who uh, even though they share many of the prime minister's criticisms of the deal in the terms of the deal uh, and would have liked a, a different or a stronger deal, don't want to give it up. Don't think that's the smartest thing for Israel's interest. But, of course, he's the prime minister. Uh, I think we know what he wants. And uh, the, prime, the president has said, well, the prime minister started with the slogan of fix it or nix it, and the president has allowed some kind of negotiations with the Europeans to proceed on fixing it, the missile provisions, the sunsets, uh, the inspections on military sites. Um, but there's a lot of indications that those negotiations, A, aren't gonna, uh, are not going to close the gap with the Europeans, and B, that the president's heart really isn't in them. And uh, that was sort of came out of the visit of President Macron in Washington about a week ago. And, and Angela that, Merkel, who was also working on trying right. to get the president... To, to stay in the deal, yeah, to right. fix it, but stay in the deal. Uh, that's when I sort of concluded that I think the die is cast. I think he's made that decision. Now, I think it's a mistake, but, uh, you know, one of the things that's been sort of frustrating about this debate is that, uh, you know, support opponents of the deal sort of suggest sometimes that supporters of the deal don't really care whether Iran gets nuclear weapons or even so much as wanted Iran to get nuclear weapons. That's sort of absurd. Both opponents and uh, supporters of the agreement uh, don't want Iran to get a nuclear weapon. Both supporters and opponents of the deal don't trust that Iran won't try to get a nuclear weapon. We just differ on the best method to achieve our objective of preventing it. So we've tried it with the JCPO. I think it would be smarter to keep it. If the president pulls out and the deal starts to collapse, and I think it will start to collapse, I hope very much there's a strategy in place to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon through another means because it's critically important that they never acquire that technology. Well, that kind of intellectual sloppiness that you're talking about where you accuse the person you disagree with of disagreeing on the goal instead of the means. I think that's always existed in political discourse, but usually at the fringes. And now we just hear it more commonly, I think, in the in our central discourse. Yeah, if you watch my Twitter feed, you'll see, I mean, I get a lot of this, uh, you know, uh, Obama really wanted them to have this nuclear weapon. Obama betrayed Israel. Obama right. uh, wanted, you know, was fine with Iran becoming the dominant player in the Middle East. And I, you know, I try very patiently and respectfully. I, tr I don't get into, you know, uh, uh, throwing insults at people uh, to explain that. No, look, this was a judgment call. You can disagree with the judgment, but the judgment call was: a, Iran must never be able to allow a nuclear get a nuclear weapon. B, the nuclear threat of Iran, and there are other threats: missiles, terrorism, other things. But that's the the most severe and the one we've got to deal with. Which first. was Bibi's argument? Yeah, and then this agreement will buy the maximum amount of time. Uh, and keep them farther away from a nuclear weapon for longer than any alternative, even though it's not perfect, even though it means we're going to have to come back and deal with uh, aspects of it later. 
uh, and you know, I think that's a fair judgment, but I think it's fine for people to disagree and say, no, that wasn't the best way. We had other means, although spelling out what those other means are is important, and, and they usually lead pretty quickly to military options. But um, you know, if that's where the world we're in, we're going to have to work together, all of us, supporters and opponents, to try to make sure in a different path we keep Iran from being so, I mean, Maybe essentially last night said that Iran hasn't violated the deal by, by telling all the reasons. His speech last night included no violations of the deal. Correct. So he's essentially saying they haven't violated the deal. I just don't like that their diplomats and leaders lied about what we know they were lying about. And it was so, a bad deal to begin with. Right. Well, what do you think the ramifications are of pulling out of the deal? Well, well, it's, America pulling out. Yeah, but yeah, so, so no, let's say let's say the, let's say President Trump decides to pull out. I think the European governments will stick with the deal for a while, and I think Iran's smarter strategic move will be not to immediately violate the deal by reinstalling centrifuges or or the like, uh, in hopes of driving a wedge between the United States and and Europe. Um, I think that may work for a while, but I think the pressures are going to build up. the 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 meaning of the United States pulling out of the deal. Probably it depends how the president decides to apply this. Is to reapply secondary sanctions, which means that European firms that otherwise would want to be able to do business with Iran really won't be able to without losing access to the U.S. market, and so that's going to put a lot of pressure on European governments. And then uh, Iran, uh, as it sees it's not getting the benefit of that commerce uh, that it thought it was being promised under the sanctions relief of the deal, will maybe slowly at first, but eventually as things start to cheat on closing off some inspections, on putting back in some centrifuges, maybe bringing back some enriched uranium. And then the pressures on the Europeans will come from both directions. And I think that's, you know, the deal will collapse. It may be, it may be some months or a year or so before it collapses. But then it does. So then Iran is essentially released from its obligations under the agreement. It can reinstall all the centrifuges. It can reopen its plutonium reactor. It can start enriching uranium to high levels again, uh, which it can't do. And it can kick out the inspectors so we can't monitor this in the same way. Um, and then, you know, their pathway to the nuclear weapon is fairly short. They were two to three months from a nuclear weapon capability for many years, uh, right before, until the agreement. There's, even though they were under very heavy sanctions, we won't be able to reinstall that kind of sanctions because the Russians and the Chinese won't be with us and the Europeans will be sort of one foot in, one foot out. Um, and so they'll be able, if they choose, to come back very close to that nuclear breakout status. And then, you know, then your options are sort of limited. And, you know, there may be military options. In fact, there is one the United States has because President Obama put it in place when it didn't exist when he came into office. Um, and, uh, but, you know, obviously you use military force and you don't know really where that leads and how much, it, it, uh, uh, how much it's going to pull you in. I think there's a lot of evidence that President Trump is seeking... Uh, major military confrontations in the Middle East. I think it's the opposite. He's criticized the Iraq War. He's talked about trying to pull U.S. forces out of Syria sooner rather than later. So if we get to that point where you know there's really few options left but the military option, we might again find ourselves in a situation where Israel's timeline to use that military force is faster than the United States, and then we could have some disagreement between us about who and when and how that's, uh, that's carried out. Right. Um, I think we should maybe get your thoughts on the embassy move, since that's uh, <laughs> something that is, uh, you know, you was your, your office for six years? Was your office for six years at the embassy? Five, five, and, and, years, and, yeah. five and a half years, Five and a half years. Great view of the Mediterranean from my yeah, office. It's it's, uh, it's it's sorry to see somebody give that up. But, but, uh, again, a new view for yeah. a new view. Uh, so I'm a, I, I'm support, I support moving the embassy to Jerusalem. Um, you know, I, I supported during the years I was in government the use of the waiver that delayed it for six months at a time, which Presidents Clinton, Bush, Obama, and twice Trump 
uh, have used. And the logic of it was, I think, sound during a period when we either had negotiations or were trying to advance negotiations, which was Jerusalem is such a sensitive final status issue and that you know some kind of change in a longstanding, even though sort of anachronistic U.S. policy that basically got stuck where we were in 1948 right. about... You know, it's it's whose is it? It's ill-defined. We'll settle it later, uh, and therefore we didn't recognize what was obviously true: was that West Jerusalem was was Israel's capital uh, from forty-eight to sixty-seven, uh, and then uh, uh, Israel unified the city in sixty-seven. Um, so, I, but I, I felt that that was a reasonable thing to do: was not to to sort of poke a, a hornet's nest by uh, having the United States uh, change its policy while you were trying to negotiate something very. Uh, very sensitive. More recently, you know, we haven't had negotiations, and there's not really much prospect for negotiations. And uh, you know, I, I feel that uh, it, it's 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 overdue for us to recognize this reality. Uh, Jerusalem is Israel's capital. It's always been Israel's capital. You know, I served at the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv, but every day I'd get in the car and we'd drive to Jerusalem, <laughs> and I'd conduct the affairs of state with the Israeli leadership in their offices: the Prime Minister's office, the Knesset, the President's residence. President Obama stayed at the King David Hotel when he uh, came to visit. Secretaries of State based themselves in Jerusalem. There's no mystery that Jerusalem, and we fu- treat it functionally as Israel's capital, even long before it was so recognized. So I was fine with the recognition, and I was even fine moving the embassy. I would have even done it faster. We have existing facilities. One of them will now be converted. These are the consulate buildings uh, temporarily into into the embassy. And they sit in West Jerusalem. And, uh, yes, yes. Well, yeah, the, the, that little line there. It's a little on the, on the no man's land, but I think yeah. these are these are not really. It's not really controversial. Um, what I do think would have been smarter, and I think it was a missed opportunity, was to try to do the right thing, which is recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital and begin to operate our embassy there, but to do it in a smart way that would also advance our strategic objective. What's our strategic objective? It's not where our U.S. embassy sits. It's the ending of this conflict. And in my judgment, there's only one end of the conflict. It's a two-state solution along the lines that everybody more or less knows what that looks like. Uh, I hope we can get there. I'm not sure we can. If we can't, it's not an end of the conflict. It's uh, some perpetuation of the conflict. But the end of the conflict is a two-state solution. And that means Palestinians having uh, the ability to have the capital of their state and at least some portion of East Jerusalem, the Arab neighborhoods, we don't know the exact boundaries, got to take care of the holy sites. It's kind of a separate issue. Um, But I think it would be uh, reasonable, even now, even with the cutting of the ribbon uh, on May 14th, to articulate that expectation as part of the outcome of the two-state solution that we're trying to achieve. And I think had it been done at the same time, and even if it's done now, it would be a lot easier for the Palestinians to absorb uh, uh, this important recognition of reality. You know, we punctured an important myth. There are uh, people, Palestinians and others, who try to deny the historic Jewish connection to, to Jerusalem and Israel's claims to Jerusalem. And that's, of course, ridiculous, and, and it's important that we speak that truth. There's another truth, which I think is equally important, uh, which is that if there's going to be a two-state solution, uh, the Palestinians are going to have to be able to claim uh, that their capital sits in some portion of East Jerusalem. And we might as well start talking about that and start figuring out what that looks like, too, even if we're many years from actually being able to negotiate and implement the details. Well, I feel like in terms of what that state would look like, I think a lot of those, it's pretty, like you said, it's pretty clear to most people what that would look like. I think the bigger issue, and I don't know what... Role diplomats could play, and you know, is this like for instance the speech that Abbas gave yesterday? 
explaining how the Jews aren't even really Jews, let alone connected to Israel. Yeah. And the Holocaust was really their fault because of their yeah. money lending. And, and not anti-Semitism. It's not anti-Semitism of the yeah, Germans. It was the behavior of the Jews that really right. led to yeah. the Holocaust, which, of course, his PhD is in. So it, to me, it, it's not that the when you're the, the, the thing blocking... The, I understand what you're saying in terms of America should act strategically to keep those options open because strategically America thinks that's the best option. But there's a whole other world of diplomacy of getting the Palestinian leadership and people behind the idea that... I, I fear that the language talks about Israel and what it has to do and America what it has to do. What's happening with the Palestinians yeah. and how, how can we change that? Sure. It's all fair. I mean, look, uh, I think President Abbas has uh, removed himself from serious uh, participation in any future peace negotiations based on some of the outrageous things he said after the original Jerusalem uh, announcement and more recently, uh, last night's speech is a good example. Um, and, you know, I think he's somebody who did make some efforts uh, toward negotiations and, and basically uh, supports nonviolence. And, of course, he authorizes a very productive security cooperation between the Palestinian security forces and the IDF. Um, but he has not been able or willing to tell some very hard truths to his people about uh, the legitimacy uh, of uh, Jewish uh, homeland in this in this part of the world, about uh, the uh, illegitimacy of the use of violence. There's just too much incitement and glorification and, and sort of celebration of people who have carried out terrible attacks. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that change in uh, attitude on the Palestinian leadership is certainly a prerequisite, and, and in this Palestinian society, a prerequisite to being able to achieve uh, the two-state solution. And, and I don't know what will follow him. I think it's very murky what the next Palestinian leadership looks like. So, like, in fair, I'd have to say this. In fairness to the Trump administration, um, who I think actually got off to a good start and and with good intentions and, and with actually a, a much more traditional policy than many people expected on this issue, um, I don't think they really had, uh, I'm not sure we did either in our years, um, the, the leadership uh, dynamic that would make it possible to negotiate a two-state solution. You've got a boss who, uh, especially now, is nearing the end of his life, his political life, uh, his, uh, uh, he's got a succession struggle brewing beneath him, he's got the constant rivalry in Hamas, he's really just too weak, I think, to make these kinds of decisions, and he's done, said, it, said and done some fairly outrageous things. And you've got Prime Minister Netanyahu, who leads a very right-wing government, many of its members openly oppose a two-state solution, uh, he sort of you know, goes back and forth on less, that question. He less openly opposes it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's settlement expansion, um, he now has his legal difficulties, and that, you know, limits his political uh, room you, to maneuver. You really are a diplomat. <laughs> you chose the right thing. So that, that limits his political room for maneuver. So I don't really think there's a serious prospect of negotiations even getting launched, much less succeeding in the current uh, leadership constellation. So what I, I just feel like the, 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 our focus needs to be on how do you keep the two-state solution alive and viable? What kind of anchors can you put down now that parties can do things that don't require negotiations but that are consistent ultimately with that direction uh, and still leave something to negotiate uh, because, uh, you know, the alternatives are all worse. And uh, it may take a long time till the right leaders emerge, but I'd rather keep it alive and viable for when that happens than lose it altogether. Right. I, I always point out to my students um, that uh, the very um, well-coordinated work between the security services are those things, you know, the Palestinian and Israeli security services, one of those things on the ground that keeps things 
you know, working between the two. Well, it's sort like of the interest of the Israeli, but also Palestinian right. leadership. Sure, no, for sure. sure. But those are like those things. Those are on the on the more right. micro level, which keeps things right. viable. But one oh, of the absolutely, but but the the structure for that cooperation has always been. Uh, at least understood by, I think, the U.S. side and the Palestinian side, and for many years, I think, by the Israeli side, too, as as part of a, a prelude yeah. to or a process that leads to right. eventual sovereignty and statehood right. and gradually increasing the capacity of those security forces. Right. If it looks like it's a f- sort of frozen in time, uh, it'll be hard to sustain. And at yeah. some point, the politics of that on the Palestinian side will be, well, how do you, what are you, you know, building toward? You're, right. you're, uh, and so well, isn't that the talk on the Palestinian Street yeah. today, basically. Sure, right? sure, and, and Palestinian security uh, forces who really have been very reliable, uh, you know, find that they're coming under pressure and criticism from right. families and everything. Well, you know, you're kind of serving the occupation rather than helping us end the occupation right. from the Palestinian perspective. Yeah, yeah. But is there is there in, in terms of active strategy? You know, there's often talk of well, how do you pressure the Israelis to X Y Z? How do you pressure Palestine, or maybe pressure is the wrong word, but how do you influence both the Palestinian leadership and the street? Yeah. Is there something that Western governments can do? Is there something Israel can do? Yeah. Or is this just something we're dealing with a culture so so entrenched of rejection of Israel, we're just going to have to wait? Yeah. Well, I, I actually, there may require some waiting, but I think we should always be clear. Uh, we have been, but it, it never can be repeated enough that uh, the incitement is unacceptable. The denial of the legitimacy of a Jewish homeland and a Jewish state here is unacceptable. Uh, that those are uh, the glorification of violence is unacceptable. And those are changes that unless Palestinian leaders can uh, help their public, and it is going to involve the public, make that transition, it will prevent them from achieving you know, their own legitimate aspirations for, uh, for self-determination in their own state. So we can uh, uh, be very clear about that. Uh, of course, this year the, uh, the United States, the Congress passed the Taylor Force Act, uh, this is a, a bill that is named for an American uh, graduate student who was murdered by a Palestinian terrorist in 2016, Taylor Force, uh, and it will uh, limit significantly uh, Amer- U.S. assistance programs for the Palestinian Authority until they end this uh, pro- uh, policy they have of paying salaries to people in prison who have committed acts of terrorism. Which the New York Times briefly thought was a crazy Yeah, yeah, they, they, they got the correction. They got oh, no, that wrong. Right. Yeah. They got that yeah. wrong. Now, I mean, the, the negotiations around that legislation were, were tricky because there are other assistance programs that we provide that don't go to the Palestinian Authority, but that go to Palestinian people, some of whom are you know innocent of any violence, and all of whom we want to see their humanitarian circumstances uh, uh, improve, and that's something Israel wants and facilitates that it also, assistance. It also makes things more stable. Because it helps make things more stable, absolutely. And there are health programs and uh, programs that provide, uh, you know, for people who are really in, in some very destitute situations. So, you know, we and, and we have the security assistance, of course. We help the Palestinian security forces, so we don't want that to be affected either. So, uh, you know, it's a tricky balance. Uh, how do you provide the kind of help that uh, Palestinians, you know, as just human beings, need that is needed to help maintain a more stable situation that will hopefully help put in place building blocks that can eventually lead to uh, a two-state solution, including a viable Palestinian state, where they're going to have to take on a lot of responsibility they so far haven't, um, and uh, still send the signals about what's unacceptable and, and what hurdles they're going to have to clear. So I really think a lot of it, and I have no idea what I'm talking about because... <laughs> Who am I? But I, I, I you're, really, you're host a podcast. Yeah. You yeah, that is true. That's, that's, we have like dozens of people who listen to <laughs> us on a regular basis. Hi, folks. Over a hundred. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, well, it's uh, we're getting up to 1,300, uh, 13,000 13, downloads. downloads yeah. So that's not bad. Uh, but I also think, see, what I always find missing is, and, and, and I actually think President Obama missed this in his Cairo speech when he talked about, you know, refugees from the Holocaust yeah. as being part of the founding of Israel. I think Natalie Portman made the same weird... When 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 we when we when we address directly the Jewish history, what you talked about earlier, that there's it's an, an undeniable connection of the Jews and this is their homeland, and I, I don't I don't know why I don't hear that enough in Western rhetoric. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, Western uh, countries are obviously focused on their interests yeah. and you know their interests. But is, even America, like I yeah. just, well, why no. is that not? Because that to me is the key. If 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 this is a conflict between two indigenous peoples, yeah, then it has to be handled differently. Yeah. and and that framing I don't hear. Well, you, you're sure this is how the prime minister sometimes talks about it. He says, you know, the uh, the whole problem is the refusal to recognize the legitimacy of a Jewish state in any borders, and he's 100 percent right that that's a major problem. I can't say it's the whole problem or right. it's the only problem, but it is a, a significant problem. It's long been U.S. policy, and you know the exact phrasing of the Cairo speech, notwithstanding, it was never any question about President Obama's right. understanding uh, about the legitimacy of the Jewish uh, state here, based on thousands of years of history and exile and return. Uh, that's a true. It's obvious. Uh, I can point to you know dozens or more uh, statements uh, during the Obama administration, and obviously since. Uh, uh, I assume it was that. some weird. I, I assume there was they were threading in all of these speeches. You're threading a needle, so you're balancing this and balancing that. The fact that the balance didn't come out the way I wanted it to is just me quibbling yeah. from my end. Mike, I was just giving it as an example, sort yeah. of. A, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Look, I I think the phrasing of that particular line in that right. speech probably could have been improved. <laughs> uh, the fact of how it was phrased was not intended to be a denial yeah. of... So I'm not uh, judging. I'm yeah, just using yeah. that. And, and you know, by the way, that was also what was very significant about that. It was, I think, the first time an American president stood before an Arab or a Muslim audience and, and you know, put his fist out and said, you know, you must re- recognize the legitimacy of the state of Israel. He also told it, the Palestinians they have to give up on the right of return, yeah, which is it the w- of their... Right. It was interesting. What happened, though, was that... that Everybody it, focused on the... Yeah. Well, what he didn't say was, instead of saying, you know, there was a lot there, there that, uh, you know, I think Israelis really could have embraced. And, you know, I think uh, more was made of that than probably was necessary. But look, it's a sensitive point. It needs repetition. It needs uh, uh, education to Palestinians. you know, and and not, and and again, we we even in the negotiations, Secretary Kerry led made very clear that recognition of Israel as a Jewish state was going to need to be in the final you know framework document. Um, and it, but it also may be true that some of these things emerge as a package. So you know, for a Palestinian leader to you know cross that threshold and and break that taboo in the Palestinian narrative. Uh, and and say to their people, we have to accept this. Uh, it's probably easier to do when they can right. also say, look what we're getting. We know we're getting a sovereign state along, you know, sort of within borders we know, and uh, we're having our capital where we want it. And you know, then it's easier to defend if you're making all your concessions, even ones you're going to have to make before you know what you're right. getting. You know, that's politically hard for any leader. Will you be at the embassy opening in Jerusalem? 
if I'm invited, I will attend. Uh, so, uh, but it's obviously up to up to the others. Do you communicate? Do they call and ask you for advice? Or you know, I I'm obviously have uh, people who I worked with in the embassy who are friends. Some of our kids go to school together at the American school, so I do see people and stay in touch. I try very hard to stay out of the embassy's business. No, but sometimes incoming un- people want to say, "Well, you were here. You no, knew how to." Can you I, give me a tip? On no, I, I have a decent relationship with Ambassador Friedman. We do communicate. Yeah. I'm always happy to share ideas. Got to be helpful. Yeah, I try try to be helpful. I've met with Jason Greenblatt. You know, I certainly try to be helpful, and and uh, I think they've been open to it. It's unusual for an ambassador, former ambassador, to stay in town uh, after they finish, and so I've tried very hard to make sure that I don't. You know, uh, get in the middle of their business or seem to be trying to interfere, and I don't think anybody feels I have been. So, the Ambassador Friedman and I are in uh, in good communication. Yeah. Right. Great. Well, thanks so much. Oh my gosh, thank you so we much. We didn't even talk about Syria. All oh, right. <laughs> next time. We'll have to come back next time. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that'll stay. Yeah. Everything's going to change. Sadly, there. sadly, it's yeah. not uh, not getting better. Yeah. yeah. Wow. All right. Thank you. It's been a great you. pleasure. Great. Oh my gosh, right. such a pleasure. Good for luck. Us. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Alan. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Matt. Matt was quiet, but he's here, too. (laughs) And bye-bye. And now for a message from Jerusalem U. If you haven't heard of the Giro d'Italia bike race, then you don't know about cycle racing. The only bigger one is the Tour de France, and over a billion fans around the world will be watching this year. For the first time, that race will be held outside of Europe, right here in Jerusalem. It's an honor for Israel and a tribute to Gino Bartali, who was the first person to ever win the race. Now, if you haven't heard of Gino Bartali, then you've missed out on knowing a man who saved Jews during the Holocaust. Jerusalem U has made a nine-minute film telling his incredible story. Basically, in the time, he was only known as a celebrity racer. But after his death, Yad Vashem discovered that he had smuggled documents in his bicycle to rescue 800 Jews. And so they listed him among the righteous Gentiles in 2013. I know it sounds like a weird Hollywood film, but it's actually a true story of courage and selflessness. Please watch our short film so that we can appreciate the sacrifice of an untold hero of the Holocaust who used his talents and celebrity for a greater goal, saving other human beings. Go to youtube.com slash jerusalemu.org and watch it. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Jerusalem U, the Israel Teachers Lounge podcast. Please feel free to subscribe through whichever service you use. Also, come join us on the Facebook page and ask us questions and keep up to date with what we're doing. We love feedback. Also, we would really appreciate it if you could take a few minutes and review and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher. It would make a very big difference for us. And you would earn our eternal gratitude. Thanks so much.